I especially love the gut level honesty that the author of that song in the third song you sang when he said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Without doing a show of hands, can you identify with that? You can put your hand up if you want to. But the reality is anybody who has named the name of Christ, who would like to say that they are a Christ follower, has felt that tugging that seems to pull you off path. And it can come daily, it can come hourly, it may come monthly, but there's always that nagging wanting to pull you away and you'd have to cry out with the author of that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And that's why he was actually saying almost in a prayer form, bind my wandering heart to you because I'm definitely in that place where I'm prone to wander. Where we're going this morning in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua needs to address that very issue. So if you have a hard copy of the Bible, maybe electronic copy, to go ahead and turn there. We'll be in Joshua 24 in just a moment. This passage is all about legacy. It's all about passing on what you know to the next generation coming up behind you. And I think you're going to find it prickly, just saying up front. Um, some people came to me after the nine and said, that wasn't prickly, that was like a gut punch. <clears throat> okay, whatever you want to call it, um, it's, it's all about personal, holy living the choices that we make in the midst of our week and how we decide to align ourselves with God. It starts out in Matthew chapter 12 this way with Jesus making this declaration. Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, it's not a secret. No government, no household, no individual can succeed if they're divided, or maybe a better word to put in there is duplicitous. If you're not familiar with that word, that, that'd be somebody who's saying one thing and doing another. We call those hypocrites. But there's a, a division there, there's a dividing of the mind. A person like that cannot stand. Now, when Jesus, mind you, when He made that statement in Matthew 12, he was actually responding to an accusation that had been made against him because he'd been casting out demons. Pharisees came and said, well, you're doing that by the power of Satan. And Jesus came to logical reasoning with him saying, Satan doesn't cast out Satan. A house divided against itself cannot stand, but he was stating the principle. You can't say you're one thing and do something else. Well, because that's a real threat. In Joshua chapter 24, what you find is you're at the very end of Joshua's life. And so he's calling all the tribes, the entire nation, to come before him and present themselves. The verse you'll see in just a moment says, before the Lord. Anytime that phrase has come up through the E2E study that you've seen before, especially since the Ark of the Covenant was built, that means the Ark of the Covenant is present. So these individuals are gathering themselves, maybe the tabernacle has been erected in this place, but for sure the Ark of the Covenant is there, and that's where we pick up verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And as is the case in so many passages in the Bible, what you find is a, a joining of theology with geography. Shechem is not mentioned here by accident, but for a very specific reason. So geography right away is blended with theology. Joshua has chosen Shechem. 
Why? Well, it holds incredibly significant moments for these individuals in their past. Two examples would be, this is the very place where God called Abraham, where He said, you'll have offspring, you'll have seed as the sand on the seashore, Abraham. That was in Shechem. It's the exact same place where Jacob told his entire family, all those who followed with him, that they had to put away all of their idols that they had gathered and, and bury them, literally put them out of their life to get rid of them. So that's the place Jacob had that family meeting, was in Shechem. And you and I recognize that being in a special place to meet with God sometimes can, can really help us to connect with God. I have that in my life. There's Sunday mornings before the house is disturbed really early when it's oh dark 30 outside. I, I like to go to one particular place on Sunday mornings before the rest of the world is stirring and spend time in prayer in that place because I know for me that's a good connection point. Well, this particular location, Shechem, is very theological for them. It's geographical, but it's very theological, and so it's theologically relevant. Shechem is a city that's located on a valley floor, and on either side of this valley are two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and they stand like sentinels outside the city. The valley is wide and broad, and the canyon walls slope right down to the valley floor, and it's all rock. And so when someone speaks there, a human voice can be very clearly heard for long, long distances. Well, now we find ourselves in Joshua 24, many centuries later, and these individuals, they're standing in the very place where God made His covenant promise with Abraham, and the promises have come true. As far as they can see, spread out all the way across the valley are millions of people. And they're there because Joshua has summoned them. And he's about to reach back in time, way, way, way back, 700 years in time, to remind them of who they are, where their ancestors came from, that they named the name of God, and that their ancestors didn't have such a beautiful beginning. He wants to remind them that they came from Mesopotamia, on the other side of the Euphrates River, in what we would call modern-day Iran or Persia. They're from the Ur of the Chaldees. That's where Abraham was called out of. So he's reminding them of their beginning, and God takes these first opening verses and shrinks 700 years of earth history down to a few bullet points. And Joshua begins by saying, what I'm about to share with you is directly from the mouth of God. Look with me at verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, thus saith the Lord, and no one would make that statement unless it was actually from God. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. They served other gods. Beyond the river means the Euphrates. The term Hebrew is actually a, a retooling of the word Eber. Eber means the other side of the river. So Hebrew, the Hebrew language actually comes from this phrase, the other side of the river. And in that place, they served other gods. Well, Abraham's daddy... His own father is Terah, and Terah's name actually comes from the moon god of the Chaldeans. So he was named after a moon god, small g. That's how associated they were with these other gods. The patron god of the Chaldeans is the god of the moon. So he's just reminded them right away in the very beginning that Abraham was raised in pagan idolatry. 
And you being in the church today would recognize for God to call a person out of pagan idolatry, out of that background, that's grace in the Old Testament, isn't it, church? Because God called him from what he was to what he wants him to be. That's what he's done with every one of you. If you walk with Jesus this morning, that's grace. But you find grace all over the Old Testament as well. So he reminds them of Abraham and where he came from. But there's this reality that those ancients were drawn towards these foreign gods. You saw it through the E2E study. It carried over into Rachel's life. Jacob's wife, she kept those little gods with her. She stole them from her uncle Laban. And then Jacob had to call out the entire family in Genesis 35 and, and tell them, you got to put these things out of your life. You walk with the one true God. You belong to Him. You literally have to bury them. So we come to this summary, and I'm just going to show it to you in bullet points because that's what God does. He shrinks it right down to bullet points. So this, this will not be a word-for-word -word match to your open Bible right now. I want to show you the bullet points of the things that God states here. Verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the, beyond the river and, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Verse 4, to Isaac I gave Jacob. Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Verse 5, then I sent Moses. I plagued Egypt. Afterward, I brought you out. 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and Egypt pursued and I brought the sea upon them. 8, then I brought you into the land of the Amorites. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them before you. Verse 11, you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho and the citizens of Jericho fought against you and I gave them into your hand. 12, then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites before you. And as you read the narrative, what you're seeing is the character of a sovereign God and the actions that he took. I gave, I sent, I'm the one who brought, I'm the one who afflicted. I did all of these things on your behalf. And he's emphasizing the character of this promise-keeping God and then it concludes in verse 13 with him making this statement. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built. You were eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. That's a match for Deuteronomy 6 because that's exactly what God said was going to happen. You guys are going to get cities you didn't build. You're going to get to eat from crops that you didn't grow because I'm going to do all of that for you. So in my mind, I've got this mental picture going on as I'm reading this, and I see this aged man with this flowing white hair sitting in this canyon, speaking from an elevated position so that everyone will hear and see him, and he speaks to this nation at the base of Gerizim and Ebal, and Joshua's reviewing their history, reminding them where they came from and God's grace to them and God's goodness to them. And his voice is resounding clearly and cleanly through the valley, up over the slopes and across the mountains so that people can hear. And in his tone, there is this unmistakable dependence upon God because in God, there's authority. So Joshua speaks with authority. And in God, there's instruction. It's very clear. And so Joshua speaks with clarity. But with God, there's gentle resolve. So Joshua speaks with resolve. And he is the consummate model of godly leadership. And he's reminding us today and he's reminding them at that point of time, it is a really good thing to review the past and remember God's mercy and to enjoy the reality that he brought us to where we're at because we are prone to wander.
Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So that's why Joshua has to start out there. Now, because of the beauty of the setting and the stellar representation of these mountains on either side of the valley and the serenity of the setting, all of that combined together makes what he's about to stay, say here stunning. Verse 14, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, that's pretty shocking because you're learning that he finds it necessary to tell of all people, this nation, this nation of Israel, you guys got to put away these things in your life. You've got to throw away these foreign gods because apparently they're still quite attached to their former way of life and they're unwilling to part with these things. So they're much more like their great, 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 great grandmother Rachel and her sister who are clinging to those old idols of the past. And what Joshua knows is if these individuals keep treasuring those things, they will lapse into departing from the things of God. And they will find themselves wandering away in what the Bible calls playing the harlot and sleeping with other lovers. Now Joshua is warning them, it is impossible to follow the one true God and follow another path at the same time. You can't be a house divided because a house divided against itself can't stand. So he uses a really deliberate term here. He uses this phrase, fear the Lord. Now, in our generation of trying to be politically correct, you will find certain translations of the Bible have taken out the word fear, and they've substituted it with the word revere, mostly because they're trying to appease individuals. And so some will go as far as to say as, well, a, a person who's following God, a Christ follower, really doesn't have to fear God. Okay, um, I'll challenge that point. Let me show you a statement that's made from Matthew 10, 28. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who said that? Jesus. That's a Jesus answer, right? Safe on that. Jesus said that. Why does he go far to say that? Let's, let's see how he said it. The word phoibeo is in your notes this morning, and you see it on the screen. And it's talking about being alarmed, to be in awe of, to fear exceedingly, all the things you would think of. Here's the thing about fear the kind of fear that's being referred to here. Fear can either be destructive or fear can be saving. In other words, there is both a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear, and you need a proper balance. Here's the way I would state it. Fear God now, and you won't have to fear the judgment later. You need to hear that again? Fear God now, and there will be no fearing of the judgment later. Keeping God in proper perspective. So it's really hard to imagine that Israel is still chasing idols. They've still got these other things in their life after experiencing so many of God's miracles. These are the very individuals who witnessed it. So Joshua finds himself having to call these people out to this position of undivided loyalty to God. Watch where he goes with this in verse 15. If it is disagreeable, maybe you have the King James Version of the Bible, it actually has the right word in there, evil. 
If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether, God, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Pause right there, because every church person knows where that next statement goes, right? You all have it on plaques on your house. Think about what he's just done here. He's given them a choice. You you can follow after the gods that Abraham used to do on the other side of the Euphrates River. You can follow after the Egyptian gods. You can follow after the Amorite gods. Those are your choices. That's the only choice you have, which should help you to understand that that last statement, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, has been significantly misunderstood, often misquoted and misapplied, and the wall plaque industry has made a fortune off of it in America because we sell lots of things with those statements. Let's, Let's start with what Joshua was actually saying to these people. Go to the word raha on the screen. It's also in your notes this morning. If it is evil, if it is disagreeable, if it is ra'ah in your sight, what is that word? If it's spoiled, if it's good for nothing, hear Joshua's words. If it's good for nothing for you to follow God, then you've got a choice. The gods on the other side of the Euphrates, the Egyptian gods, the Amorite gods, those are your choices. So what Joshua is doing here is he's acknowledging that some people consider an alignment with God to be evil. So he's just said, if it's evil in your sight to follow this God, if it's odious to you, if you figure out that it's harmful to society, well then go ahead, the world's open to you. Now you might be thinking, who would do that? Who would land on that position that following God would be evil? Still happens in our day. I found it very interesting, not a Republican thing, not a Democrat thing, not intended to be political, but just the fact that we installed a new Speaker of the House in Congress this last week. The Speaker of the House made a really interesting statement when he was put in his position. He made a speech before the assembly, and he invoked the name of God and the reality that he prays and that he's a follower of Christ. And news media around the world exploded. Like, how dare he bring God into this? What right does he have to do that in that setting? Well, who would think that way? Well, non-believers, a person who doesn't follow after God. So Joshua has to say that to these individuals. If you're finding it evil, if you find it as though it stinks to follow God, well, here's your choices. You've got the Amorites or you've got the Egyptian gods. Figure out which one you're going to go after. But remember who he's actually speaking to. He's not speaking to non-believers. He's speaking to God's people, which causes me to realize, that's right, there's a large number in the church today who are nominal Christians. You might want to use the term posers. Is it starting to feel prickly yet? Hang on, it's going to. There's a large number of nominal Christians who will identify with God on Christmas and on Easter 
but they walk the fence. Not sure which position to land on. No conviction whatsoever. And they haven't landed with firm conviction, so they continue to walk the fence. And that's the crowd that's before Joshua. People who are posers as though they really belong to God, but they actually don't. Now remember who he's speaking to, God's people. And he's not trying to tempt them into idolatry by saying, well, you got these other gods you could go follow. See, here's the thinking. The very thought of aligning themselves with the Amorites or with the idols would be so embarrassing and so abhorrent. He's thinking, okay, this is going to cause them to take a stand so that they will not be divided, so that they will not be a house divided against itself, which cannot stand. And this is the problem going on at this period of time. The fertility cult of the Amorites was incredibly attractive. It offered all kinds of sexual freedom. So the gods of the Amorites gave them license to do things they wouldn't do, and they couldn't find permission to do under God, the one true God. But the fertility cult of the Amorites also was the god, small g, over the agricultural environment. Now, these people are 25 years removed from Jericho at this point. Joshua 24 is 25 years later, and they've become an agrarian society, and they are raising great crops, and they're knowing enormous abundance. And things are going pretty well agriculturally. Well, they've got these little things that they've hidden away, these gods of agriculture, the Amorite gods who have given them sexual freedom, and they can do whatever they want in the dark. And Joshua is calling them out by saying, you've got to stop messing around. You can't be jumping from bed to bed. You're either wholly dedicated to God or you're not. And if you're going to choose, your choices are those two choices, the gods of your ancestors or the gods of the Amorites. But know this, the one true God is not one among many choices. He stands above. You align yourself with Him and no other. Because the God of the Bible is a jealous God. And that's hard for individuals who are not church people to hear. You know, that statement actually really messed up Oprah Winfrey. She was a church-going individual until she learned that God was a jealous God and she didn't know what to do with that. She openly speaks about it. You can look it up yourself. That statement, I'm a jealous God, means I expect you not to give your devotion to anyone else. You wholly belong to me or you don't. I am not one among many choices because I have to be Lord of everything. So Joshua is speaking very specifically to them as I would speak to us today and I do this to myself. We, and we have to do an honest evaluation, church. We have to ask ourselves, where do I stand and do I live in the same way that I say that I stand? Do my choices match my language? Keep going with me. Verse 16, the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us out and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. We will also serve the Lord for He is our God. Now, that everyone is feeling the impact of these words is really obvious. It's hitting them like a concussion of a cannon. God forbid! You would never think that we would associate ourselves with those Amorites, to which I would say how little they actually know the human heart. 
they would be much better to be like Paul in that setting and say, God, I keep doing the things I don't want to do and the things I do know that I'm supposed to do, I don't do. God, will you deal with me? I'm a wretched man. That would be a position of humility. That's not the position that they take. So Joshua receives their reply, but he knows their heart and he knows evil is insidious. Hear me on this. Evil mimics God. It's insidious. God is patient. So evil is incredibly patient. It lays a trap and it waits for the right moment to pounce and little by little, each generation, picking away at each little generation that doesn't speak of God to the next generation that stops speaking of His character and His mighty works, eventually it produces a change in a culture. A culture that found themselves previously devoted to God finds themselves way removed from God. And there's a very sad change of heart that takes place only a couple years later. Look with me at Judges chapter 2 and Judges chapter 2 verse 10. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel, to which any student of the Bible would step back and say, what? Israel? How could they not know the Lord? How could they not even know the mighty things that He's done? Well, that's on the parents. That's on the parents who didn't pass on the legacy. I know every family deals with situations where one or two children might decide to wander away for a while or go astray completely. But you're looking at an entire nation here who do not know the Lord. And that's telling us that this Joshua 24 generation, they miserably failed. Had they truly served the Lord, this shocking ignorance that you just read of, that would not have become dominant as the theme throughout their entire society. So Joshua has to get really hard with them, verse 19. It's a really interesting sales technique. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Is He doing like reverse psychology here? I thought He was just ramping them up to get them to commit, and now He's telling them that they can't commit. Normally in contract negotiations, you don't find one side of the bargaining party telling the other party, you're not going to measure up to the bargain that we're striking here. But that's exactly what Joshua is doing. So his response can be kind of confusing, especially after he's just encouraged them to commit to the Lord. And now he's telling them, you're not going to do it. This is not exactly a halftime pep talk, is it? He's not making them feel good. You might immediately wonder where he got his theology by saying, God's not going to forgive you. Well, always keep text in context when you're reading the Bible. What's happening here is Joshua is really doubting their sincerity, but they keep insisting that they will be faithful. Well, we all know that half-hearted commitments are completely worthless. Imagine you are in my role and you get to do weddings and you stand before a bride and a groom one day and you're helping them with the contract negotiations, right? So when, when a bride and groom exchange vows, 
They're, they're settling the terms of the contract publicly before everybody. So imagine if you were in that setting that I find myself in a lot and you are saying, do you take so-and-so to be your wife, to have and to hold this day forward for better, for worse, richer or poorer? And the groom stepped back and says, wait, for life? Like, I, what if I get bored? Now, besides the fact his bride would be slapping him across the face at that point, you would never expect someone who's saying, I'm making a vow for life to say, yeah, I, I want some options here. I'd like to renegotiate the terms of the contract. So what Joshua has done for them is he's stating when he says he will not forgive, he's using some degree of hyperbole here because we completely know that it's contrary to the nature of God not to forgive. He does forgive. He says that about himself. If you're new to church, this would be very helpful for you. Exodus 34, verse 6. This is God speaking. The Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So we absolutely understand it's littered all the way through the Bible. God does forgive. What is Joshua doing here? God does forgive sin, but He does not deal superficially with sin, and He will not accept fake contrition. So Joshua has to call them out on it, and he's cautioning them not to speak carelessly because God's going to hold them accountable for their words. If you believe that God holds you accountable for your words, would you say amen? The Bible says every word that we speak. That's a scary thought. I'm not sure I like all the words I've spoken. And we're told that we're going to be held accountable for that. Now, if you're in Jesus, you have no fear of that issue. But the reality is he's going to hold us accountable for the things that we've said. I'm not even sure what that completely looks like. But he says you will be held accountable for that. I want you to hear me very clearly on this. There, there is not a danger of a true Christian falling into pagan worship. I'm not suggesting that this morning. And Joshua is not suggesting that they're going to fall immediately into pagan worship. These individuals in Joshua chapter 24 find themselves to be saying, much like the church today, wait, wait, we're fully committed to God. What's going on here is they're having a really strong reaction to his statement because they're saying, we would never do that. Joshua, how could you possibly call us out on this? Because of this. There's a legitimate danger of putting too high of a value on some object, on some person, or some activity in our life that we would allow to take precedent over our relationship with God. So just as Israel is admonished in Joshua 24, Christ followers, you name the name of Jesus, Christ followers are admonished to be responsible to live with a singleness of devotion to God. That's why when the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do, what more do I have to do to get the kingdom of God? Jesus said, well, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and give your money to the poor. Was Jesus advocating bankruptcy at that point? No. Is it because Jesus hates money? No. It was because the dude coming to him loves money, and Jesus knew his heart. 
And so the one thing keeping him from being fully devoted to God in that instance was money. He let money rise above his relationship with God. That's why the story goes on to say that he walked away sadly from Jesus because he had great wealth. That's why Jesus in response said, you cannot put your hand to the plow and look back. You can't do two things at the same time. You have to keep moving forward. Fully devoted is what Scripture is calling us to. So that's where Joshua goes in this, and he qualifies his theology with verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you. Notice this next statement, really big deal in your Bible. Circle it if you have your Bibles open, if you don't mind doing that. After He has done good to you. So He's setting up the rationale for apostasy. What is apostasy? It's when an individual knows who Jesus is, they're aligned with Him, and say, absolutely, I belong, but I choose to go this way. That's apostasy. That person has become apostate in their behavior. Apostasy is littered throughout the Scriptures, and Joshua is calling them out on it in Joshua 24. But watch their response to that. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And they're confessing a commitment. At the same time, they're expressing disgust at the very idea that they would depart from God. Instead of just agreeing with Joshua, that would be a great thing for them to do in this moment and just say, you're right, we've messed up. We need a new beginning here. If they would just acknowledge their weakness in this, instead of doing that, they're doubling down with increased energy. And it's in this second phrase of response that I actually discover just how ignorant they are of the true nature of God. And I don't mean stupid. I mean they're actually ignorant of God's behavior. Because God warns us, let him who thinks he stand be very careful, time out, because you might be the one who's falling. Pride comes before the fall. That's why you find Paul to be so impressive in the New Testament saying, I I may have won lots of people to Christ, I may have advanced lots of churches, but wretched man that I am, I know what I'm like on the inside, and I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do do things I shouldn't be doing. So we have to be very, very careful in checking ourselves. So Joshua has to say to them, your own words are going to condemn you if you turn from the commitment that you've made. Verse 22, Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. And the real core of the problem comes out in verse 23. The real issue that Joshua is actually dealing with here is they've been trying to have it both ways. They want what the world offers, and they want what God has done, and Joshua is calling them out on it. Verse 23, now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. Oh. They thought it was a secret. They thought the thing that they did in their house at night that nobody knew about, that God doesn't know about that. Thus saith the Lord, verse 1 started with, and God has revealed to Joshua, these people are doing things that are not consistent with people who say that they belong to me. Put away the things that are in your midst. 
that you have chosen for yourselves. Choose the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses, verse 23. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So at this point, after this really strong confession that they've just made, if they further indulge in evil at this point, you know what the result will be? The result will be the severest punishment possible because if they willingly walk away from God now, that'd be really arrogant sin. Joshua is incredibly consistent with New Testament understanding of this very issue. I wanna show it to you so that you really get it down. There's no remedy for someone who willingly walks away. Let me show you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Pay very careful attention to the wording. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. And mind you, he's not talking about stumbling into sin. He's not talking about somebody cuts you off in traffic and your anger flares up and you get mad. He's not talking about stumbling into daily sinful behavior, which everybody does. He's talking here about flagrant, intentional sin. For the person who says that they align themselves with Christ, but at the same time says, I'm going to do whatever I want. It's my life. Who are you to tell me differently? It's my choice. Scripture says this in verse 25, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Just kind of as a side note, I find it really interesting that he does this pile of rocks thing again. It's what they did in Jericho. It's what they did after Achan was killed. It's what you find many of the leaders of God's people doing, that they set up a monument to remind people so that they do not forget because we are prone to wander. And here it comes to a screeching halt. Chapter 24, verse 29, it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. So Joshua 24 is all about God pushing really hard on the tendency towards apostasy. And he has to say to his people, you have to put these things away. These things that are a source of causing you to fall away from God. Because God has to be served alone and he does not share his glory with another. And he will not tolerate secret lust that divide the heart. Really interestingly, this uh, last couple weeks I was reading something that was written in 1836. Charles Simeon was speaking to his church about this very same passage. Uh, I want you to see this. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. The very walls wherein we are assembled will testify against you. To use the strong language of our text, they have heard all the words that have been spoken to you. 
The faithful declarations, the earnest entreaties, the rich encouragements, yes, the stones out of the wall will cry out against you. Times without number, you have prayed that you might live a righteous, sober, and godly life to the glory of God's name. And yet many of you at least have either never set yourselves in earnest to so live or have carelessly declined from the ways of God and forgotten the vows that are upon you. (laughs) You think I'm hard on you? How would you like to have been sitting in that church? And if you read his writings, it is prolific in the way that he unleashes on the people of God in that setting. Because the people of God know this reality. We know that throughout the Old Testament, we're being told it is not appropriate to call yourself God's people and yet live with hypocrisy in your life. And the same thing is true in the New Testament. It's not appropriate to call ourselves God's people and yet live as though we don't actually belong to him. One old theologian said you you can't actually have secret reserves of embarrassing corruption. The things that are willfully hidden in your life, things you would never want anybody else to know in the light of day that you actually are doing. But our society is making many of those things much more permissible to do in the light of day. When I was in college, I had a mentor say to me, Mark, the things that you're doing, are those things that you would be doing if Jesus was standing right next to you today? I didn't have an answer for him. I wanted to say sheepishly, no. I appreciate when people call us out on hard issues. Joshua is calling them out on this hard issue. That spokesperson into my life said, you can't keep doing this and say that you belong. Where do you land? So Joshua 24 becomes this incredibly strong statement of this difficulty that we all live with, and myself included, we all identify with this, this difficulty of focusing exclusively on the Lord because we find our hearts prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. So he's stirring them to this fixed purpose that they have to serve God resolutely, that they have to serve him inflexibly and exclusively. And here's why you have to be so uncompromising about this issue. You have to possess that kind of legitimate truth internally to actually call him Lord. Because if he's truly Lord, He's Lord over every area of your life. It is no use to call him Lord if you're not doing the things that are according to his will. So I wrap it up with this. This is what Jesus said about that very issue, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is talking there about posers. The very issue that the church faces today, are we posers or not? God's call is for holy living in every area of your life. And we have to look at it the exact same way Joshua called them out by saying, your own conscience testifies. You don't need other people to know. You are witnesses against yourself. Do I belong to Jesus or not? Gratefully, God cares enough to say to us, be careful. Be on your guard against harboring idols in your life. 
And you don't need an idol or a god of stone or a god of wood. The idols of entertainment in our world are enough, right? There's lots and lots of gods with a small g to pull us aside. So I enter into prayer with you right now, recognizing we are totally dependent upon God to help us walk this path, not earning a righteousness of our own, but pressing on, like Paul wrote about, I press on towards the high calling of Christ Jesus. We'll pray in just a moment. Here's an announcement for you, uh, unrelated to everything that we just covered. We have to have an issue of uh, dealing with some business here at the church this afternoon. So if you're part of the New Hope family, I'd love for you to be able to come back at four o'clock. And it's a, a business issue. We've had a financial issue within the Compassionate Care Fund. And it's a serious matter that we need to discuss as a church family. So if you're able to come back at four o'clock today, we'll be talking about that. If you're not able to be here, we're gonna send out an email to the entire church body so that everybody's caught up to speed. But if you're able to be here at four o'clock, we'd love to see you at that time. Let's pray together about both of the things that I just mentioned to you. Father, I recognize and I, I pray on behalf of every person who's part of this service, whether virtually or audibly or present in the auditorium, that we recognize when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that Jesus has taken away our sins permanently, but we find ourselves wandering and leaning back into our lifestyles that just are not pleasing to you many times not walking according to your will at all. So I pray on behalf of all of us, Father, that you would give us the strength, the power, the capacity through the Holy Spirit. And it's not as though you're holding back in reserves, Father. We know that you would do that. But that we would be in that place of humility of asking for your help and your strength and feel the conviction in our heart that we want to walk with you as people who really do belong to you. Help us to make it more than just words, God. I also pray, Father, for this meeting that's coming up this afternoon that you would go before us and guide us with wisdom. Help us to understand exactly how to respond to to these things that have come our way. We do pray for your blessing that all this time that we spent this energy in studying the book of Joshua, that it would return to us tenfold, that you would use it in our lives to speak into the lives of other people. We pray for your blessing in that way. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus who loved us and gave his life for us and we look forward to seeing one day. We praise you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.